Welcome to Everyday Cults, Everyday People, a podcast exploring destructive, controlling groups and the impact they have on everyday people like you and me. Thanks for being here. I'm Jane Taylor here with cult survivor Jarette Bouillon, author of An Everyday Cult. Our topic today is falling. This is the title of part one of Jarette's book. Jarette, I wonder if you could read your journal entry from January 1996. This is in part one of the book. Sure. It's like I'm falling in love, devoting myself to the wonders of the work, the thrilling openings and surprising twists of discovery. I am a sponge, sopping up all I can from others as I find my way through early motherhood while opening my mind and heart to a whole new way of being in the world. Thank you. Falling, as you might be able to interpret from that reading, falling refers to both falling in love and falling asleep. Often, but not always, cultic involvement begins with love bombing. That's a starry-eyed stage where someone is magnetically drawn to a group or a leader that promises the moon, and it feels really, really good. Typically, it can include a lot of longing, learning about oneself, and a lot of idealizing. Just as no one intentionally falls in love with an abuser, no one intentionally joins a cult. We fall for them. It's an interesting premise. Many traditional cults have active recruitment. You might remember being approached by people in colorful robes at the airport. How were you recruited, Jarette? For me, it was actually quite simple. Uh, my friends had started working with this guy, and they were pretty starry-eyed and all bubbly and excited about it. And quite frankly, I wanted what they had. Mm-hmm. It was that simple. Mm-hmm. Were you required to recruit members yourself? Hmm. Certainly not early on. I must have been in the work for probably, I would guess, about five years or so before there was even, for me, the even remote awareness of thinking about what other people thought about me doing this work. And this is where I think there's a difference between what I'm calling an everyday cult versus a more... I don't know, what's the word, traditional <laughs> cult? Not that there's much tradition, but we were never we were never actively encouraged to like go out and get people. But what happened for me, Jane, is that a, about five years in, I could scarcely have a conversation with the person, any person, without trying to convince them how wonderful this work is that I that I was doing. Were you trying to convince them because because you were sensing opposition to them or was it just this is so great I want you to have this great experience as well? I think it was the latter that I want you to have this great experience as well, but now I also see that 
I believe I was also trying to convince myself that this was a wonderful thing, that there actually was some part of me that was unconsciously aware that something was off. So like, for example, one of my jobs while I was in the group was to be a poster hanger. So yes, we would have different events. And I had to post posters all over the place. And I had confessed to my uplink, my higher up person, that every time I hung up a poster, I would shake and sweat. And it was very intense for me to do this job. Wow. And what in the group, this was reason for me to become eventually like the queen of postering because I had to work harder to overcome my resistance. Mm. But as I look back at it now, I can see that actually by hanging up those posters, I was violating my own values. Mm -hmm. Is it typical that cult members are... Well, you were recruiting in some way. You were doing yes. some kind of recruiting, putting up a poster. You want people to come. Is right. it typical that cult members are required to recruit? That's very common in most. Recruitment is actually like what keeps the machine oiled. Mm-hmm. New people coming in um, is what It's like the number one objective of every cult leader, every cultic group. It's what keeps you going. Looking back on having joined a cult, what impact does the phrase, no one joins a cult, have on you and possibly on other ex-cult members? Uh, You know, Jane, I will never forget the first time I heard that phrase I was visiting, so it was after I got out of the group, I had discovered these people who had a cult recovery center down south of Boston. Uh, Their names are Bob and Judy Pardon, and the name of their place was Meadowhaven. And I had set up a time to go visit them. I was glad they were willing to see me. I drove and got out of the car, was shaking like a leaf as I'm walking into their living room and classroom. And we were talking about something. And Judy looks at me and says, Jurette, no one joins a cult. And in that moment, it was like a bolt of new awareness. Like, duh, of course, coercion, manipulation, the misnomer of consent, all of that has become part of the work that I do now because it's so true. No one joins a cult. You are joining a good thing. Like that's a line that comes from Mark from Nixium Cult. Um, but, you know, you join a good thing. You, you participate in something that's wonderful. But actually what's happening are major or minor moments of coercion, subtle manipulation, and a kind of asking people, assuming that consent is there when it actually isn't. 
the manipulation of consent. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Mm -hmm. I think for people who have not been involved in cults, such as myself, I imagine people join cults, but this is a really interesting distinction. This is a real eye-opener because you're not joining a cult. You've been manipulated and coerced into membership or maybe entrapped somehow or entranced into membership. It's not that, oh, look, if I sign up here, I'll earn five points at uh, in the hereafter. I don't know. <laughs> so in our conversations and in your book, you've mentioned the sense of community and fellowship you found in the cult. You called this nice feeling, love bombing. Yeah. What was so attractive to you about your everyday cult? What kinds of love bombs were hurled at you? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, so I was, before I started doing the work, I had been deeply involved in uh, Waldorf School where I was a teacher. And the anthroposophical, the anthroposophy is the, uh, the spiritual foundation of Waldorf education. And it's rather kind of weighty, stodgy, very deep, esoteric. And so here I was in my early 30s at this point, and all through my 20s, I had been immersed in this way of thinking that was had a weight to it. And I think what I was so attracted to in my friends who had started seeing Doug and started doing the work is this levity that they experienced. So it was just refreshing. There was like mm. this, um, you know, very interesting, compelling levity. It was also like cutting edge work. We really believed that Doug was bringing together this, um, you know, Jungian psychology, astrology, different kinds of, um, you know, looking at life in a whole new way that was also really spiritual. And it was like we were cowboys, you know, on the new frontier. So it was just very exciting and engaging. Like we talked about last time, Jane, we also had the food love bombs that uh, I, I thought about this a bit since last week. Food was a big deal. You know, mm -hmm. like every class we went to, there was this gorgeous spread of food. So that's also kind of another, another form of love bombing. Mm -hmm. Is love bombing a quality of some of the more sinister cults as well? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it can have, so I'm going to share with you what's coming up for me is a, an experience of watching The Vow. Um, that is a, a docu-series on HBO about the Keith Raniere cult or Nixium that has gotten quite a lot of press um, since the fall. And there was this moment where Keith Raniere, who is now in jail for 
120 years. When he first met Alison Mack, who was an actress who became one of his uh, kind of top right-hand people, they show a scene when they first met. And in that scene, uh, you know, there's like a little bit of flirting. This It's taking place in the middle of the night where they would go out and play volleyball in the middle of the night because Keith wanted to play volleyball. That was this thing. So part of the love bombing could actually be like doing something quirky, like going to the gym at midnight to play a couple hours of volleyball. So everybody was all, you know, sweaty and you know, there's, I don't know how many people there in this scene. I don't know, 30, 50 people in this scene. And Allison had had also been playing volleyball and they kind of sit down next to each other and they're filming this. And Keith starts to kind of flirt with her a little bit and say something like, oh, you know, so nice you're here. Don't quote me on this, please. Uh, those of you who know the vow intimately. What I'm going to share is what came up for me. And Keith asked her, like, what's most important to you? Like, what is it that you love the most? And Allison, like, talked about her love for music and beauty. And she actually got a little teary-eyed. And then Keith asked her, well, what would it be like if that didn't mean anything? Mm. And so it was just like the, it was like this moment of him taking her in a moment of vulnerability, feeling this kind of love. Also, other people were watching. And what was she going to do with that moment? All she could do was think about it more. But what he had actually done was... In a way, to me, Jane, it was like a verbal rape. Mm. She had opened herself and he stripped it away. Like, what if it means nothing? Did you take a vow? Did I take a vow? Interesting question. Uh It's like... What I would say to that, the way I would answer that question, Jane, is that it was like a slow vow of the erosion of the ground of my psyche that was being eroded. Hmm. And there was less and less place for me to stand that was solidly me. And in that way, you know, they talk in the Christian path about the narrow path, the narrow way. In that way, my world was becoming more and more narrow. And it's a kind of aligning oneself with a path. And of course, I didn't know that it was a false path. Mm -hmm. But it was a path that actually was benefiting my ex-teacher more than and and stripping me of my autonomy. So in that way, I did sort of take a vow, although it was not like one that was, you know, I didn't sign on any dotted line ever. 
And we didn't have like uh, some, a lot of cults will have like you repeat certain phrases that are like mantras. And we didn't have that. Were you given a name? Or could you use your own name? I was, I used my own name through the whole thing. My husband was given a name. Not a good one. Hmm. I don't think I'm going to say it. Okay. That's, that's fair. In, in honor of your husband, we'll, we'll keep his good name. Yes. Thinking about falling into a cult, equating it with falling in love. Was it gradual? Did, I mean, you just mentioned that it was a gradual erosion of your psyche, your personal identity. Do you think that this sort of flirtatious attraction, this falling in love, was that gradual or was that something that happened right away? Hmm. There was so much reason to want it to be a good thing because I kept discovering more and more people who I knew and loved and respected who were doing it, who were doing the work. So I think the the falling for it was maybe a little like falling for, okay, I'll say, I'll say it this way. Falling for the idea of it actually happened pretty quickly, mm-hmm. but I didn't know what I was falling for, you know, in that same way that maybe you don't know who you're falling for if you're falling in love with an abuser. Mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't aware that it was happening. I wasn't aware that I was falling for something that had a lack of integrity. You weren't aware that this was happening. Looking back, do you feel like your personality changed? Hmm. You know, some of my friends felt like they were losing me. I used to laugh a lot. I I laugh a lot now. Um, But I was kind of known for having this kind of quirky giggle um, or guffaw, And they told me that I stopped laughing mm. as, as much. You know, it wasn't that I didn't laugh at all. Um, so they said that I became more serious. And I can really only, you know, I, I know this more through them, hearing them share how they felt I changed. Mm-hmm. Is there such a thing as love at first sight (laughs) in the cultic world? Uh, Love at first sight. Well, you know, a friend of mine, um, Marlo Sands, who wrote a great book about her experience in the Andrew Cohen cult, uh, she describes in her book like the first time meeting Andrew And she just experienced this extraordinary ecstasy. Wow. I would say, yes, there are people who who experience this. Um, Is that love at first sight or or is it something else? I I don't really know the answer to that. But I guess I will share that I actually saw my husband at the Warren 4th of July parade, um, even and I had no idea who he was. I had never met him, but I felt magnetically drawn to him. And we didn't meet until later, 
uh, weeks later. But I remembered him. So was that love at first sight? I think I would trust that a little bit more because we are still together. (laughs) And we have gone through a hell of a journey Mm -hmm. in our 35 years together. Many of the cults we've talked about, and I know that hashtag I got out doesn't use the names of cults or the names of leaders. It seems to me that many of the leaders are men. Is that true? I would say statistically, many of them, more. there are more cult leaders that are men. Um, although there are plenty of women cult leaders. There's, you know, I can think of like right off as you ask that question, you know, I can think of, you know, half a dozen. Um, so it's not that men, it's not that women are immune. In, in general, we're a patriarchal society, so men hold more power. So it makes sense that there would be more men. But women have their way with cultic manipulation as well. Sure. There's so much more to talk about, and we will as we <laughs> as we delve into these episodes. I just want to remind our readers that Jarette is founding collaborator of the hashtag I Got Out movement, amplifying voices of individuals who have experienced cultic abuse. Their stories steer us to a new day where abusive power is recognized, called out, and dismantled. Search hashtag I got out or visit igotout.org for more. Thanks again, Jarette. What a pleasure. As always, Jane. Thank you. Look forward to next week. Very good. <laughs>